Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Well, today's the holiday. I am also on vacation. And so I am actually posting a request. Someone had requested that I throw the ITY video back up for you guys to view. This is actually a 22 minute video on YouTube. You only get a few minutes here on the Instagram, but uh, find your way over there on YouTube today to watch the whole 22 minutes. It's probably worth the watch. Have a great day, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Yep, you're good. No, I, what, I, what I wanted to talk about was that we just can't blindly prescribe exercises because, so the, the trend always seems to be like, oh, there's high EMG activity for this activity, therefore it is a good thing. Right. When the reality is, is that the EMGs are really good at picking up concentric activity and not as good at picking up static and, and eccentric orientation of muscles, right? So high concentric activity is not necessarily always a good thing. Right. And so just let's pick on I's, T's, and Y's because it's easy. Right? So those things get prescribed like nobody's business under every shoulder protocol known to man because they have been demonstrated in the research to have high EMG activity. But the reality is it could be the exact wrong thing to do if I'm trying to restore someone's movement capabilities under certain circumstances. It doesn't mean it's a bad exercise, it just means that it's prescribed kind of blindly at times because people say, well, it's good for you and then they prescribe it. But the reality is it doesn't help people and it can be a hindrance. Well, so then, all right. I'm, I'm your traditional physical therapist coming out of PT school. Mm -hmm. And I see that someone's lower trap is weak based on my manual muscle test that right. I did. Right. In, in my mind now looking through that in this model, mm -hmm. we have a decreased concentric orientation oh wait 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 wait! you can't say that you can't say that you can't say that because if if i move it in either direction if i eccentrically orient it or if i concentrically orient it i can produce i can produce the perception of of give way which is identified poorly as weakness right and now i'm now i'm taking a concentrically oriented muscle and i'm training it harder in a concentrically oriented position and I'm comp creating a compressive strategy in the same place, which will ultimately limit my ability to recapture certain elements of range of motion or create a compensatory strategy to achieve a an outcome. Sure. So for instance, if I do I's, T's, and Y's with somebody that is already compressed in the dorsal rostral area, and, and I say that this is my external rotation measure, but what if I drove this exercise so hard that when I measured you on the table, I was actually measuring a tilted backwards thorax, and so now it looks like I've got plenty of external rotation, but yet I can't achieve an overhead reach. I can't get normal flexion, right? Or I can't get horizontal abduction, or I can't circumduct my shoulder because I drove this concentric orientation so hard that I compressed the dorsal rostral area. Now I've made a mistake, and that would be my prescription that was, that was the problem, right. right? So I did the exact wrong thing because I didn't understand what I was really doing. 
And so that's why we can't blindly prescribe things. We can't generalize exercise programs. So let's take 10 baseball pitchers. And then they're all gonna, because they're pitchers, right? Magically, they have the same needs. They're all different heights, they're different body weights, they're different shapes, all of their physics are different. And yet they're gonna do the same 10 exercises because they're throwers. And this is going to somehow be useful and accurate and helpful. So maybe three out of the 10 guys get a, an, an effect that is beneficial. And then three guys you're, you're not doing anything with. And then the other three guys are, are declining in their performance. And then the one guy is like your outlier. I don't know. Let's just throw him out. Let's make it nine. It's easier to go three, 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 right? <laughs> But, but seriously, it's like we just can't, we can't generalize an exercise prescription. So if I have a baseball pitcher that, that has limited breathing excursion and a wide ISA, he's going to achieve the outcome of throwing a baseball totally different than somebody that's really, really tall, like six foot five, six foot six, narrow ISA, built like a tube, right? They don't, they don't produce the throwing motion the same way. How could I possibly give them the same exercise program as a some sort of prophylactic manner. I just can't do that. I can't think that way because it would be wrong. Like I said, for some people it might be the perfect thing and for someone else it might be the exact wrong thing. So yes, because they are individuals, they're going to need a different prescription of activities to boost whatever issues they may be having, right? What do you think of the argument that because they're doing the same activity, there's similarities within that activity. So, you know, exercise prescription should look somewhat similar because of the, it's the same activity. Well, I would say that there's certain elements that would be similar, but different. So for instance, if I had somebody that, again, let's just look at the, the physics of the individual, right? So if I, have a, if I have a shorter, wider torso relative to a taller, slender torso, their helical angles are different. So if they do turn, they turn at different angles. And so I can't set up, like, I, let's just say I prescribe both of them so, like a half kneeling chopping activity, right? I have to respect the helical angle at which I am performing that activity to optimize it for that person. So I can't set it at the same angle. I can't give them the same cues. They're going to produce turn in a different way. And so, so again, I can both prescribe both of them a chopping activity, but my cues are going to be different and the exercise is going to be different because they don't do it the same way. So yes, they both throw, but they don't, they don't, they're not performing the same activity. Right. We call it the same because visually it looks the same, but because they're producing it differently, it ain't the same. Gotcha. Right? And so again, we just have to individualize this a little bit more effectively. Because if I have somebody that has a dorsal rostral that, that is already compressed and I give them a compressive strategy, I didn't help them. Maybe they can overcome it. Maybe, maybe they're good in spite of my programming, but I certainly didn't enhance anything. So when we think about how we're gonna prescribe an exercise like an ITY kind of a thing, it's like there's gonna be a very select group of people that will benefit from that, right? But my typical, if you think about the, the compensatory sequence that, that somebody with a wide ISA goes through, they're closing this area first. Right. That's their, that's, after the ISA, they're closing this. Do I really wanna give them another activity that's gonna close it farther and then drive another compensatory strategy? I don't know, 
because maybe from a performance standpoint, maybe they do do something better. But did I compromise something else as a secondary consequence? Did I compromise some health, maybe? I don't know. But that's why we have to measure these things. But we also have to be concerned that we're not just blindly throwing exercises at people in, a, in some form of generalized uh, philosophy. Because right. it, it just doesn't work that way. Right. So again, it's like what are like the main arguments for selecting these activities? And it's like, all right, well, well let's talk about. So let's do this. So let's talk about who that type of exercise would be great for. Sure. So let's talk about that because I think I think we have some predictive capability as to who would benefit from that that type of an activity. How about go how about go over exactly what is happening at the thorax when you're doing an activity like that. Sure. So is, yeah. establish that first and then right. we can dictate no, what absolutely. exactly that absolutely. Would benefit. So 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 let's think about um, the the external most external musculature that we, that we would talk to talk about in the dorsal rostral area. So we're talking like lower, middle, upper trapezius. Happy Tuesday! I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Well, we are still in vacation, so. Today's video is another encore presentation by request. I uh, did a video last week in regard to just a general representation of impingement. I think I used uh, the pelvis as an example. This is a video from back in June that I did specifically about shoulder impingement. We actually go into the purple room and demonstrate a few things on, on Alfred, my skeleton. That'll give you a much better representation of what's going on with, with the shoulder impingement, along with a little bit of a solution. There's also videos on YouTube, if you look through there, um, that will also provide you a number of elements of solution for your shoulder impingement. So take a look at those, and then I'll see you guys tomorrow. So I got an email from David, who's having some shoulder pain with, with bench presses. He's doing a lot of ITY exercises, face pulls, rubber band exercises for rotator cuff strengthening, and he's still having a lot of shoulder pain. So I thought it'd be a good idea to come into the purple room, get a bigger represent representative model of what's going on in the rib cage and the shoulder and the scapula. So we have enlisted the assistance of Alfred here, and we'll talk our way through what may be going on. A lot of the time, shoulder pain is the result of a loss of range of motion that's associated with the inability to change the shape of the rib cage or change the position of the scapula as the arm moves through its arc of range of motion. So especially with compressive exercises like pressing, the exercise itself is going to promote a restriction in ranges of motion. If this is the case, then we need to make sure that we're doing enough work to maintain our ability to expand the thorax in the appropriate manner to allow us to maintain as much shoulder range of motion as possible so we avoid the painful ranges of motion. So let's talk about how the shoulder actually moves through its range of motion and where we would expect to see this expansion and compressive strategy that allows us to move the arm through space. In the initial phase of raising my arm up away from my side, I need to make sure that I get expansion in this posterior lower aspect of the rib cage. This prevents the scapula from compressing against the rib cage too soon or moving too soon, and I immediately lose range of motion under those circumstances. So maintaining this expansion in the posterior lower rib cage makes sure that I start from a good position. 
As I move the arm through this middle range of motion from about plus or minus 30 degrees from the horizontal, this is where the scapula actually moves the most. So this is what most people would term upward rotation of the scapula. And this promotes a compressive strategy in the upper back. This also pushes air forward and promotes an upward pump handle position of the sternum as I move the arm through this middle arc of range of motion. As I get to the top of an overhead reach, I need to expand again on this posterior aspect of the upper part of the ribcage. And if I can't do that, then I immediately have a deficit in my overhead reach. So what David's doing is a number of exercises that promote a lot of compressive strategy on the upper back, which is perfectly fine if that's what is needed. However, if he's promoting compression below the level of the scapula, what you've already started to do is taking away the ability to externally rotate the shoulder, and I'm beginning my my upward reach in an internally rotated position. If that's the case, then as I pass through this middle arc where I should acquire internal rotation, I'm starting from internal rotation, and then that can promote compression within the shoulder joint that gets uncomfortable. This may be why doing activities that are creating more and more compression in this posterior upper back area are not helpful and actually may be detrimental to the solution. So from a solution standpoint, what we want to make sure is that we get expansion in the posterior lower part of the rib cage. We want to then promote the compressive strategy in the upper back once we have this intact so we can get the expansion on the front side as we pass through this middle range of motion. And then once again, we want to make sure that we get expansion in the upper back as we acquire our overhead reach. So David, based on your email, what I would do is I would back off a little bit on the amount of rowing that you're doing and amount of upper back work that you're doing with your eyes, T's, Y's, face pulls, etc., that are actually increasing the compressive strategy here. What it sounds like is you need to reacquire some of this posterior expansion to allow you to start from a better position before you go into your heavier pressing movements or active range of motion above shoulder level. So David, what I would do is I would spend more time working on expanding that posterior upper back and the posterior lower rib cage with activities such as this seated dorsal rostral expansion activity where I'm supinating, externally rotating the arms by pushing my hands apart, gently pushing down to the table and keeping my upper back expanded as I breathe in and fill that space in the upper back with air are the activities that I would probably try to emphasize more so than your eyes, T's and Y's which actually compress that. David, if you go to my YouTube channel or the Instagram page, you'll also find a number of exercises that could be easily modified to help you maintain the expansive strategies that you're going to need to help maintain your shoulder range of motion and keep training. So David, thank you for your question. I think it's a really good question because I think a lot of people are also dealing with this. It's not that eyes, T's, Y's, face pulls, rows are bad exercises. We just have to be a little bit more selective as to when we're implementing these exercises and have good reasoning behind them as a strategy to help us stay healthy and train. So I hope everybody has a great Monday. I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Well, what a great Wednesday. Coming off a couple of days of vacation, feeling pretty good, feeling strong. Uh, quick reminder, tomorrow, 6 a.m., Thursday, the Coffee and Coaches conference call. Please join us for that. There's
there is no charge for that, of course. And it's great conversation, great people all over the country um, are joining us on that one. So that's always fun. I want to dig right into the Q&A. Wednesday is always a tight day. But we got a great question for the uh, live comeback this week. And it comes from Johnny. And Johnny says, if propulsion and force production are both biased into internal rotation, would the hip still move through its ER, IR, ER from the bottom of a squat to standing, or would it remain an IR bias throughout the range of motion? This is great. This is a great question. I think, Johnny, I think you already know the answer based on the way that you that you asked it, but it's a very useful uh, question because it's gonna gonna provide us an opportunity to talk about some cool things about, about squatting, like sticking points and, and uh, the pelvic diaphragm. So let's go through this real quick. So let's talk about the hip range of motion first. So if we were talking about traditional hip flexion, as we move through hip flexion, we're gonna have an, an extra rotation bias in this early phase of flexion as we go through the middle range, so 90 degrees plus or minus 30 on each end. Um, we're gonna talk about an internal rotation bias and then we're gonna have an external rotation bias again at the top. If we're looking at the, the shape of the pelvic diaphragm or the shape of the pelvis as we go through this, we're gonna go through an inhaled position as we're ER'd, we're gonna go through an exhale position as we're IR'd, and then again, we're gonna go through the inhaled position. Now that's just range of motion. We're not talking specifically about squatting. And it does look like we should go through those phases during a squat, and in some cases, we do have people that are able to achieve that. But when we're talking about loaded squats and the need for higher force production, um, depending on, on those demands, we're gonna have to bias ourselves towards a position that does allow us to, to produce more force. And so under those circumstances, Johnny, you're absolutely correct. We're gonna maintain more of an internal rotation bias as we squat, especially with load. And so let's talk about the sticking point a little bit because this is where a lot of this is gonna show up because this is where we have to produce some of the higher forces. So this 90 degree plus or minus 30 that's traditionally referred to as the sticking point, which is our IR bias, it's our exhalation bias. Um, it's an exhalation strategy, high levels of compression, and it's also gonna be our max propulsive phase uh, during, during the squat. And the reason that, that we need this is because we have the force of the load that is external, <clears throat> plus we have internal forces that are trying to drive drive downward through the pelvis. And so for us to achieve a, a, a level of depth under certain circumstances, we're gonna to have to eccentrically orient the pelvic diaphragm to a degree to allow us to achieve the, the hip range of motion to, to capture depth. However, as we push back up, we have to concentrically orient that pelvic diaphragm. So if the pelvic diaphragm goes up, we get to go up too. So we get to push ourselves up out of that squat. If the pelvic diaphragm is going down, guess what? We are going down too. And so those of you that are ever lifted, uh, a heavy weight in a squat and missed a lift where you started to come up and you just couldn't overcome those internal forces and you end up going right back down to the bottom of the squat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so again, we have to create this situation where we can achieve a concentric pelvic diaphragm. That requires that we have hip internal rotation available to us because what that's gonna do, it's gonna help maintain this exhaled position, the concentric pelvic diaphragm, the high pressure strategy that allows us to stand back up. So this is why you're gonna see any number of deviations in a squat. So you'll see people that will, that will move their, their knees outward. And what they're actually trying to do is they're trying to maintain this internal rotation position of the hip joint to help us maintain the concentric orientation of this pelvic diaphragm. If we release it too much, again, we're gonna descend into squat. This is why you'll see powerlifters squat the way that they do because they don't wanna deviate from their concentric orientation to, to this 
the slightest degree because the more eccentrically oriented they are, the faster they're going to go down, the less control they have, and, the, and it's going to make the turnaround very, very difficult for them. Um, you'll see Olympic weightlifters will bounce out of the bottom of their squat, and what they're doing is they're trying to unweight themselves internally, which allows them to sort of elevate quickly. They can capture the concentric orientation of the pelvic diaphragm and then finish the, their lift as well. Um, so how much internal rotation and external rotation you're able to achieve during the squat is going to be context dependent. So um, at high levels of activation of, of musculature, there is, there is a much uh, smaller length change. And so if we're doing a heavy, heavy squat, you're going to maintain that IR bias almost throughout the entire thing because I have to maintain some measure of higher force production. And so again, I'm going to remain concentrically oriented. Like I said, the length change is going to change very, very little because the more length change I have, change all the faster I'm going to go down um, in, into that, that squat. If body weight is challenging um, for you um, all by itself, then chances are you're going to see somebody that's going to have an, an internal rotation bias to, to even their, their body weight squat. And so again, it becomes very, very context dependent. So the strategy is going to change uh, under load. If you're interested, um, there's a sequence of, of a squat workout by uh, Lu Xiaozhen. Uh, who's a Chinese weightlifter, he's an Olympic champion. You'll know it's him um, because he, he is Chinese. And then he also squats, uh, he, he also uh, trains and lifts with very bright gold shoes. And so if you watch the sequence, there's actually a whole picture sequence of a squat workout where he's at low weights and then high weights. You'll actually see the deviations in his squat. So Johnny, great question to start us off um, for, for the live stuff this week. Um, and I appreciate uh, you asking that question. Hope I answered it for you sufficiently. If I haven't, ask another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Everybody have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow on the, co the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. See ya. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Welcome to the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Was there a specific moment in your career where you started moving towards like significantly developing and using this model? Like was there more of like a, a black and white, a, a night and day moment? Or what, what did that process look like for you to create much of this? I, I, I took, a, I took a, uh, a series of courses that I had to do a little, little bit of mental prep, a little bit of review in. And just doing that sort of inspired some stuff just, and, and I would say that would be the beginning. So this is like 20 years ago, right? Um, that I, I, I started to get more curious again, right? And the resources were, were most available. And, and so that started it. And then it was just a matter of like, like sort of, if you, if you, you could chunk like, I did three years of this, I did five years of this, I did eight years of this, and then, but it, it's, it's like this perpetual evolution where, where um, you start to do something and you really dig into it. Whatever it is that you do, you dig into it. So you get the, the, the deepest understanding possible, and then you sort of top out, and then you kind of cast that aside because it's not answering all your questions. And then you got to go to the next thing, and you kind of do that, and you, you invest yourself, and you dig into it. And, 
and then again, when, when you, they can no longer answer your questions, then you set that aside and you say, okay, so here's my question, where can I go find it? And that's kind of what the, the whole process has been, right? And then about four years ago, I was really frustrated because um, again, you have measures of success and then there's like this group of people or these situations where, where what you're doing just tops out and, and, and it, 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 it's, it's um, um, there's, the, the questions start to become more numerous and then there's fewer and fewer answers. And so it's like, so, so I just said, screw it, I'm just gonna chuck it all. And I started over, like literally just went from scratch and I said, okay, like literally the first thing I said was, what are you made of? Right? And then started there. And then it just sort of builds on, on itself from there. And you take all the pieces that, that, that came before it, right? Because that's still familiar, right? So I, I could still say, okay, but if, if, if this is my model, then how does manual therapy fit into this? And so that's, that was the goal. The goal was to say, I have this, this, this overarching model of everything, and now I can kind of see how everything fits into that, rather than just saying that, oh, um, where, where they would sell you a technique. Now, you've been to those courses where, you, where, where they, they, it's all based around a technique, right? And they say, this is the end all be all. This is all I ever do and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you can't have that. And, and again, that was, that was the level of frustration that, that sort of led to, to the, the, the evolution of what I'm working on now. And it's, a, it's still a work in progress. It'll change. Like you talk to me five years from now, if I'm still alive, if you talk to me five years from now, um, it'll be different. Because that's what it has to. Because every time you answer a question, it has to change. It's more fun now than it has ever been. I'll give you that. Why? Why? Because it's continuously changing and you no longer get bored. So, so, so there's novelty. There's novelty. Every time you answer a question, there's this level of excitement. And it's like that, that, the moment of recognition of, oh, that's what that is. It's like, that's, that's really exciting. So there's like this constant state of, of evolution and discovery that goes with it versus having something that is, that is supposedly concrete, right? Which again, I'm not devaluing it. I'm just saying that it's gonna top out. It, like that, those kind of things top out. And then the excitement is gone. The interest, interest wanes. And then you, you start to see these gaps that you have that, that um, and again, it was my own fault for, 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 you know, the way I chunk things together. Um, it, it, it's your own fault for losing the enthusiasm because you, you quit asking the questions. You, you said, oh, this is how it is. And it's not. So, like I said, more fun. Discovery is always fun. Like when you get good at something and you sort of, it, it's, it's like hitting your first home run. You know, you go, oh, that's what that feels like. I want to do that again. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. So kind of a subdued day on this date. Um, I think it's important that we continue to remember those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. So please do so. But I would also say, let's take this opportunity to thank those that continue to sacrifice for us. So thank your public service, or servants rather, 
um, we got a, a, a fair amount at, at IFAST, and so we will take that opportunity to thank them today. Um, now, having said that, let's move on. We got a really solid Q&A to wrap up the week. In fact, I'm gonna kinda combine two questions here one that's a little vague and one that's a little bit more specific that will help us answer the first question. So the first question comes from Austin. Austin says, hi, Bill, I love your work. Well, thank you so much, Austin, I appreciate that. I was wondering when I do heavy bench presses and weighted pull-ups, my shoulders hurt, what do you think that is? Thanks a lot. Well, I was kind of limited in the amount of information that you're providing for me there, Austin, but thankfully Johnny came through with a, a second question uh, this week that I think might help us um, come up with a at least a reasoning behind why you might be feeling these these uh, uh, shoulders the way you are. So Johnny says, if someone cannot get their humerus past 90 degrees while maintaining external rotation, is this an issue of not being able to expand anterior, posterior, or both sides of the thorax since this would be within the internal rotation portion of, of shoulder flexion? Also, why might someone abduct the humerus while moving through flexion? Okay, so a couple things, first things. First, let's go through a little bit of, of understanding in regard to how this shoulder moves as it moves through flexion. Um, as, and as we talk about internal and external rotation, I'm gonna use the hip as the first example because we've talked about that a lot. And so I'll show you. So as we move through this early phase of hip flexion, that would be an external rotation bias as we move through the middle range. So the sticking point area, uh, the, this highly propulsive area is gonna be internal rotation and then we're gonna finish with external rotation. Now, the cool thing about this is, is that the shoulder really isn't all that different. So if we take the shoulder and we look at the same representation, so I got my scapula on my shoulder here, in this early phase of shoulder flexion, I'm gonna look at external rotation bias as I move through this middle range, so from 90 degrees plus or minus 30, I'm gonna be looking at an internal rotation bias. This is where my highest force producing capabilities are. And then as I finish with flexion again, I'm gonna to move towards external rotation. So I would encourage you to go to the YouTube channel and go through um, a couple of videos. So there's one on how to measure shoulder flexion a little bit more effectively. There's some self-testing that includes a shoulder flexion test um, that, that will be very, very useful. And then last week, I think I posted an encore video in regard to shoulder impingement that will also be very, very useful. Now, to go to Johnny's question in regard, is this an anterior or posterior compressive issue? So if we're looking at this early phase of shoulder flexion, so about zero to 60 degrees, we're gonna be looking at, at the influence of expansion and compression, this posterior lower aspect of the thorax. So reason being, if this area is compressed, I will lose my ability to maintain external rotation of the humerus as I move towards flexion. So if we want to pick up, pick on a muscle, if we want to pick on muscles, we'll just say, okay, if I've got a lat that, that is compressing that, that posterior lower thorax, what it's going to try to do as I try to, try to move this shoulder uh, away from, from my side or move the upper extremity away from my side, it's going to cause the humerus to want to turn inward, right? Now, a typical compensatory strategy for this would be for somebody to turn away from that side as a substitution, and therefore I can sort of maintain my humerus in this externally rotated 
orientation. Um, typically what you're going to see in the gym is you're going to see somebody that, that's going to increase their, their arch of their lower back because the, what would be considered traditional extension is actually um, an internally rotated position of the spine. And so again, that's what you're typically going to see. That's why you're going to see an, an arch in a bench press or you're going to see um, the arch in a pull-up um, because this is a substitution um, for a lack of shoulder motion that's created by this compressive strategy of latissimus dorsi against the, the uh, posterior lower rib cage. So again, this is not a bad thing. It's great for uh, compressive strategies. It's great for force production. So it is a necessary evil of the exercise. The thing we have to be sure is that it doesn't become interference. Now, as the shoulder moves farther into uh, what would be considered traditional flexion, I have to move into internal rotation. So it's an internal rotation bias. But if I'm doing something that I would consider like a bench press, where I have concentric orientation of pecs, I'm gonna have a compressive strategy anteriorly under this circumstance. And so I'm gonna lose that internal rotation that I need to get through that, that element of, of shoulder flexion. Typically what you're going to see under those circumstances is I'll see a shrugging motion as a substitution or again I'm going to move away from midline. So I'm going to move my, my humerus away from midline much like we do with the femur when we're trying to squat when we don't have access to internal rotation. We're going to deviate the knee laterally because that's going to allow us to move towards a position that is more uh, externally rotation biased and then from there we can internally rotate again. So the humerus is no different. So as I elevate to here, Johnny, the reason that I would deviate laterally is because I'm trying to move towards external rotation, which is in that horizontal abduction plane. And from there, I will be able to access more internal rotation. So now, Johnny, we've answered your question. Okay, let's go back to Austin's problem. So Austin, um, for you to move through um, the active ranges of motion associated with the bench press and, and your pull-ups, you're going to need an element of external rotation. Uh, otherwise, you won't be able to move because you're going to be using uh, a propulsive internal rotation, exhalation, compressive-based strategy to try to move through those ranges of motion. So if you lose the ability to externally rotate the humerus due to the posterior compression that we saw um, in the back of the rib cage here, or you lose interrotation on the, the anterior aspect, now you're compressed on both sides. So now all you have is a compressive strategy in the shoulder. So you're starting your shoulder range of motion from an internally rotated position. You're gonna have to move through the excursion where interrotation demand increases. And so you're gonna end up with a lot of compressive strategy as you're trying to move that shoulder through, through any arc of a range of motion. And so now you're just dealing with what would uh, commonly be called impingement. Um, I would refer to it as just, just a, a, a compressive strategy that is gonna end up potentially resulting in a, in a pain experience. But because you don't have any compensatory external rotation strategies available to you, you're stuck in IR, you live in IR, and you're trying to move in IR. So, um, Johnny, I hope that answers the question for you. Austin, um, you need to work on getting some anterior posterior expansion back into that, that thorax, and that should help you alleviate a great portion of those compressive strategies that are giving you the discomfort. Everybody have a great Friday. Um, Remember to listen to the podcast on Sunday so you get the whole week in review. And then I'll see you guys next week.